Hi, we're Ellen Taylor, and we're here to join you on your journey from pregnancy to birth, postpartum, and beyond. Here on the podcast, you'll get interviews with birth and parenting professionals, birth stories, and educational episodes to get you feeling confident, supported, and empowered on your journey to and through parenting. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Hi, I'm Elle Kennedy, a birth photographer and doula based in Orange County, California, and I use she, her pronouns. Hi, I am Dr. Taylor Garcia, a doctor of chiropractic, also here in Orange County, and I also use she, her pronouns. Today we're talking to Caitlin Francis. Caitlin is a licensed speech-language pathologist from Southern California. She's a school-based therapist who conducts assessments and provides intervention for students in K through 8th grade. Her passion is with supporting neurodiverse and autistic students. Caitlin, welcome to Birth Reimagined. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So one of the first things we like to ask our specialists when they come on the show is, what is it that you're most passionate about? What is it that really lit your fire and got you going on this path? Um, Well, I just love my job. I mean, I feel like I have the best career in the world, to be honest. And um, anything I can do to kind of give back to the community and to empower parents on how to make decisions and choices to support their child's development is just something that really excites me. And you know, I, I would do this for free if I could. And um, I just love talking about this kind of stuff. So I'm just really excited to kind of share what I know and kind of answer any questions because I know the World Wide Web can be so overwhelming with information. And I just want to provide just another resource for, you know, people to check in with. So Caitlin, so what is the age range when kids should start, start talking? And does it vary by gender? Um, That's a good question. So when we start, when we think about the word talking, Um, kids usually start using their first true words between 10 and 14 months of age. Um, And a true word needs to be a pretty close approximation of what the adult word would be. So if a kid was looking at a cat or something like that, you know, if they said like, oh, look at the cat or the cat and they were pointing at something, you would count that as a word. Um, But if a kid was maybe playing with a toy and saying, ma, 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 over again, that really wouldn't count as mama because they're not really looking at you and saying something with intent. Um, So we really start looking or we start counting, I should say, true words as when a kid looks towards you, says the word that's an approximation of what the adult word would be and says it purposefully more than one time. Um, And in my experience, there's not really a significant difference between when boys and girls start talking. Um, There's mixed kind of evidence about that. You know, girls tend to talk a little bit sooner than boys, but um, there's some new research coming out that says like, "Eh, it might not be as statistically significant as we once thought it was. Um, So is there a, a difference in age range for kids talking if they have older siblings? We tend to notice younger siblings talk on a little bit on the later side when it comes to that age range. But when you're looking at uh, child averages and milestones, you're still looking at about those 10 to 14 months is when kids start using their true words. Now that just, you know, start talking. There's so much development that happens well before that. I mean, even at birth, babies start showing communication intentions and we have milestones that we look at starting, you know, day one with baby development. Um, So what other kinds of milestones for communication can we be looking at? I know some people talk about doing, you know, baby sign language and things like that. I know we did that with my older child and she really took to it. She loved communicating with her hands even before her speech was 
you know, she was ready to be developed and, and be able to talk with her mouth. So there are some amazing infographics and resources out there, and I will share it some with you guys after the recording so you guys can put it on your notes for the podcast for this episode. Um, but there's also a program out there that um, I really, really like. It's called 16 by 16 months. And there are about 16 gestures that kids really should be using by the time they're 16 months of age. And it ranges from pointing, you know, giving something to somebody else, showing um, intent when they're reaching towards something. We wanna look at kids, you know, how is their joint attention? How is their eye gaze? Are they, you know, responding appropriately when an adult smiles at them? Are they trying to imitate certain things? So there's so many different things out there. Um, The CDC has some great guidelines on different things you want to look out based upon pretty much like month by month, really like these different milestones, because so much development just happens, you know, within the first five years of life. Um, You're noticing changes on a month by month basis, which is pretty incredible. Now, you had talked about um, interacting and how babies start interacting fairly early. What are your thoughts, and you may not have heard this, that babies actually interact in the womb as well? Like, the kick is when it's them just moving, but you can actually, like, play, like Simon says, uh, with your baby as as they kind of grow and develop. When they start kicking, you can, like, tap their foot, and then if you tap near them, they might tap back. Have you heard of that before? Well, I'm 31 weeks pregnant myself, and I can tell you this little one is very interactive. Um, <laughs> definitely likes to respond to music and stuff like that. My husband, who's a French horn player, we can always nice. get you know some movement going and response to every time he plays. You know, he'll play like a note, and then the baby immediately like kicks right afterwards. And so it's kind of funny to you know bother him. <laughs> it kind of helps too when I get a little anxious. I'm like, I haven't felt enough movement lately. Oh, honey, can you like, you know bother the baby for a minute that's always kind of (laughs) nice do you think that that kind of pre-interaction before they really enter the world might affect how they how their interaction develops like what they might might develop sooner maybe or I mean I don't know if I haven't researched yet but any thoughts on that well there have been some studies about you know playing Mozart to your baby or playing different kinds of music when your baby's in the womb. Um, That's definitely not my area of expertise, um, but I do know there's been some mixed results. I haven't seen anything super conclusive yet, though, that says, you know, that cause and effect sort of play when babies in utero um, really has an impact on development, but that'd be a really interesting kind of thesis. Yeah. Someone should follow up on that. I like that. Okay. Well, I know that there is, has been a little bit of research done with like giving, having, having like a song for your baby, because then once they're out of the womb, they, they're used to that song and they will be comforted by that song. But yeah, they probably should do more research on in general, like how development kind of progresses early on before they really enter the world. Yeah. Taylor and I were actually talking about this just the other day that, um, I with Charlotte, I was actually put on medical leave from work a month before um, my due date. And during that time, I, you know, was 36 weeks pregnant. I basically couldn't go anywhere, do very much. And none of my other friends had kids or were pregnant. And and so I was just kind of by myself and at home a lot. So I binge watched a lot of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and after I had Charlotte, um, you know, she's an infant. She can barely lift her head up. 
But oh man, if that theme song came on, she would whip her head around and stare off in the direction of the TV, like trying to find the noise and like she would just wait. And as soon as the song was over, she would go back to whatever she was doing. So if she was nursing or if she was, you know, playing with a little toy or something, she'd go back to it. But she recognized that song and wanted to figure out where it was coming from and was very interested in it. You know, I've heard um, a lot of like anecdotal stories about that where people have sung specific songs for their babies in hopes that, you know, when they come out that it has that soothing effect. Um, We do know that babies are listening to their mother's voices and so their cries kind of imitate the cadence of whatever the mom's speech is when they come out which is always interesting too um yeah it's just really interesting I mean there's so much listening that happens at a pretty early stage in development and you know that's not my area of expertise but I know that there's some like really great articles and stuff out there and I'd be happy to look up some things and shoot them your way, you know, that's coming from the early intervention language development world. That's so cool. Um, so back to, you know, the not infants anymore, but, you know, the slightly older, you know, toddler preschool age range. Is there anything specific that parents should be looking out for that might indicate their children or child may need speech or language support? Well, in general, development is pretty predictable. So we use both milestones and averages to kind of predict how a child is going to develop and what sort of progression a child will take. So, you know, just for definition purposes, a milestone would be, you know, when about 90% of kids acquire a skill at a certain age. Um, But the average would be when about 50 kids, sorry, 50% of kids acquire that skill. Um, So whenever you're kind of looking and kind of comparing, you know, how your child is to maybe your friends or some different things that you see online. I definitely recommend that parents look more towards the averages than those milestones because, you know, if you have a if you're in that bottom 10%, that's a pretty significant delay. And so that can be kind of overwhelming and really scary. Um, but just know that there's a lot of people who are out there, a lot of speech language pathologists, especially early interventionists, that really want you to make those calls early and get those consultations. Um, you know, the sooner that we start working with children, the better the prognosis is usually for those children if there is a delay. And so um, looking at those checklists, those milestone things that are kind of being spread a lot more prolifically at different pediatrician offices or different daycare centers is a really great way to start. Um, But when in doubt, you know, trust your intuition. If you think that your child might be delayed, please, please, please reach out to a speech language pathologist. And I really want to emphasize that parents reach out to SLPs, um, that's the acronym for speech language pathologist, and not their pediatricians. Um, I love pediatricians. They are amazing. But honestly, they don't really get that much training when it comes to cognitive and communication development. Maybe they get a week's worth of lectures throughout the entire nine-year training that they have to undergo versus in the United States, all SLPs have to have an undergraduate degree and a master's degree specifically in communication sciences and disorders and complete a bunch of continuing education um, units every three years to make sure we're current with the research. So always reach out to an SLP because we are really the only professionals that are thoroughly versed in all aspects of communication development. So Caitlin, what is your process for evaluating a child that needs support? So if your 
participating in an evaluation, um, really what's going to happen is regardless of the setting that you're in or the age range that you're assessing, your parents, the caregivers, are going to have to start out by filling out an intake form that goes over, you know, developmental milestones, their observations, what their concerns are, just to give us some like background information like you would for any sort of medical developmental process. Um, after that, your child will be, will be invited to come in person for about two hours at least, I would say, depending on the age, um, to complete some in-person assessment activities. And what those activities are really do vary by age, but in general, it'll include an SLP's observation of how your child interacts with you or plays in general. And they also might use some formal measures to compare your child's development to different normative data. So there's different assessment tools that we have. Some are what we call criterion referenced, where they tell you if your child is meeting certain developmental milestones by a certain timeline. And so it's more of a checklist. Um, if your child is old enough, we might use some norm reference data in which we give your child a standardized test, score it, and then compare their performance to other kids their age, you know, from a sample of children their age across the United States. Um, after you do an assessment, you'll get a report. They will walk you through what all the findings are. They'll tell you, you know, what are their strengths? What are their challenges? And if there needs to be any services or any recommendations made, they'll walk you through what that looks like as well. That's really cool. So they they invite the kid in to really do, a, you know, this is going to be a longer assessment than just, you know, going to your pediatrician for a checkup. Like you said, like, this is this is a very specialty thing and you guys are assessing in a very detailed way to be able to say you know your child is excelling at this but they're a little bit weaker in this area and this is where you know maybe we can do some things to help out absolutely and you know we're kind of trained that regardless of what the referral question is you want to look at articulation skills you want to look at their vocal quality. Are there any signs of stuttering? How is their expressive language development? How is their receptive language development? Do we have any concerns regarding social skills and play? And so we look at language as a whole, but also we break it and we compartmentalize it into a lot of pieces that, you know, other professions don't necessarily know to look at in that sort of lens. And so, you know, the assessment process is pretty comprehensive. And so that's why, you know, if you have a concern, talk to an SLP because even through the phone, we're pretty good at, you know, talking you through, you know, what we would recommend. So, you know, always reach out. So what are those um, kind of interventions or things, what might those look like if you do find that a kid needs some support in, you know, one area or another? Well, it all comes down to age. Um, we provide services. And so, you know, there's different sort of settings that you can access services from. Um, in the United States, they're, you know, kind of divided into two camps. We have the publicly funded systems, and then we also have private pay insurance or systems. Um, the quality and the type of services are pretty similar regardless. Um, but I think it's really important for parents to know that if you have any concerns, there are so many ways that you can access these sort of supports. Um, the main difference between a pub publicly funded program versus private pay insurance is just that the eligibility requirements. Obviously, when you're looking at something that's funded by the state, 
they're going to want to see maybe a little bit more of a deficit than what a private practice might accept. Um, so if your child is under three, we would call any sort of intervention or assessment, anything like that, early intervention. Um, so if you have any questions or you're interested in early intervention, what you can do is you can Google your state's name and early intervention, and you'll find the name for that program, and it'll walk you through what you know the entire process would be for your state. And unfortunately, it does vary from state to state, so I can't really give you guys any specific information on what that looks like, but um, it is all federally mandated and organized, and so there are some legal requirements that these organizations have to meet, which is kind of nice because it does offer protections for families. Um, once you get over three, then the school district takes over. So even if your kid's not in elementary school yet, you can reach out to your local elementary school or um, some of the larger school districts have their own preschool programs and talk to them about the evaluation and the assessment process and how to get started with that before you, know, you would jump into services, which is kind of cool. And school-based services are even available for um, people who choose to homeschool or send their children to private school. So it doesn't matter if you're accessing public school, you can still access services, which is really great. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, obviously, I'm a little biased because I work in the schools. We want you guys in the schools. But <laughs> we understand that that's not um, always the best choice for every student or for every family. And you know what? You guys do what you guys need to do, but we are willing and able. So reach out if you guys have questions. We actually homeschool, but we homeschool through, we we still are under a school umbrella. So we do still have a teacher that we check in with and we still, you know, can talk to her about concerns and stuff. So, but I never thought about the fact that they might have a speech language pathologist on staff. And even if they don't at this particular homeschool co-op, they that we would be able to access it through our local public school system you know and each district kind of does have different requirements for how they offer their services but you guys can at least get that first assessment done which is where you need to start is square one and then you know on the flip side if you don't want to go the public route you can always go through private practices um i would say try your insurance first Speech and language services are covered by Medicaid, um, called Medi-Cal in California. So there is funding available, but your insurance plan might not cover as many services as you would necessarily get in the school or, um, or state early intervention program. Um, you can also go the private pay route, but it can be really expensive. Um, I'm, you know, SLPs tend to charge at least $100 per hour for services. So I urge families to, you know, Explore other avenues first, because I know it can get pretty costly, um, but there's lots of options out there. And so there's so many services available, and we are actually such a broad field, and we service such a big percentage of the population that um, I think it's really important that you know people know that we're out there, we're here to help. This is not something you really hear about unless you really need it. Yeah. Now, Caitlin, do... Does anyone in your profession deal with like tongue tie or lip tie, or is that kind of more the chiro, pediatric, or physical therapist, that kind of branch? Oh, absolutely. It could be a speech language pathologist. Um, you know, we deal with such a wide variety of different disorders and different differences. Um, some people do specialize in feeding disorders um, and uh, craniofacial myology, which is more of that specific study of how do 
the oral structures and the oral function kind of change how, you know, kids' faces grow and how they move and stuff like that. And so tongue ties are definitely a part of our scope practice. Um, if your child does have a tongue or a lip or a cheek tie and they do need remediation, it is always re- recommended that re- they receive some services as well in correlation to whatever that surgical procedure is. Make sure that you're exercising and you're stretching out that tissue or else those ties can grow back. Um, mm-hmm. And I know it's kind of a multidisciplinary approach, but SLPs can be part of that team. Okay. That's really cool. I think that's something that our listeners should know about is that, you know, I think a lot of us hear about uh, tongue ties uh, being a potential issue, especially during breastfeeding is usually when they're first noticed, but that if it's not, you know, corrected, it can cause speech and language issues depending on how severe it is, but also that lip ties can become an issue during breastfeeding as well. Um, I was unaware that Teddy had a lip tie until we'd been breastfeeding. So, you know, I breastfed with a shield because the lip tie was so severe that Teddy couldn't get a proper latch. Luckily for us, the lip tie wasn't severe enough to um, affect us other than me needing to use a shield. Um, But I know that, you know, I've had friends who have needed to have their kids helped with you know, fixing lip ties or tongue ties and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty common. I think it's kind of the new trend in our field right now. And so um, I, there's like a training actually that I really want to go to specifically about ties, especially since I'm getting closer to my due date. I'm like, oh, I really want to educate myself more on this. Um, But I've worked with kids with articulation issues who, you know, they're five, six, seven years old and they're having the hardest time talking and no one's really taking a look in their mouths to kind of see like, oh, wow, you actually have a pretty significant tongue tie. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see, you know, how some of those cr- corrective procedures can really make a difference for some kids. Unfortunately, though, it being the trend, um, doctors have a tendency of jumping straight to surgery and not looking at like chiro yeah. or physical therapy, which understandable. It's, it's what happens in medicine is when trends pick up, they take off and then they kind of eventually get, Oh yeah, that's not quite how we should do this. And they get adjusted. Um, but uh, yeah, well, a lot the, of them get snipped without the follow through and then they grow back. Yeah. That follow through <laughs> is necessary as well. So we're doing our best here in the medical community. You know, change is just one step at a time, and you know it, it, it it's definitely a process. <laughs> yeah. So, Caitlin, what is the most common first word a child says in your experience? Uh, <laughs> I would say no is up there on the list. Anyone who's <laughs> been around a toddler might be able to attest to that. Um, but mama or dada or whatever the equivalents are in the child's native language are also really, really common. Um, and I don't know. Okay. I think this is super fascinating. I'm just going to nerd out for a minute. Um, but you know, it's really interesting if you look at like what the names are for parents across different languages. Um, you know, in general, regardless of the language that you speak, the first consonants that kids develop are those sounds that occur at the front of the mouth and are things that are really, really easy to repeat, like the ma 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 ba 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 pa 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 or da da da. Um, and so it's kind of changed how languages in general develop. 
So if you take three very different languages, you have, you know, French, Hebrew, and Korean. Um, the word for father, you know, in French would be like papa. Um, in Hebrew, it would be Abba. And then Korean, it would be Appa, which is so interesting because all three of those languages developed completely independently of each other. And yet they have these really similar linguistic kind of structures or they contain the same sounds. And so, I don't know, I just like nerd out when I kind of notice those sort of patterns and stuff because it's really interesting. That's similar for mom as well. Mother has a similar kind of that M A yes. or that M M sound is uh, pretty much through almost all languages. Yeah, we have mama in those Latin speaking languages. Um, oh gosh, Hebrew is ima. I think in Korean it's oma. Yeah. So it's really interesting. That's really cool that like all of these languages have similar sounds. It's I mean if those are the sounds the baby's making first it makes sense over time that those languages would embrace those sounds to have meaning. Yeah. I mean, we've just changed, you know, parents want their kids to say mama, dad so badly that we've been willing to change our words <laughs> to make it happen. <laughs> so Caitlin, what is like one of the activities you would do with a child that needs speech support? Well, it depends on like what we're working on. So if a student Sorry, I always say student because I work in the schools. But if a child has um, any needs for maybe a speech sound disorder, we're working on articulation. A lot of what we do is kind of drill and kill. We're going to be working on facilitating production of that sound in isolation first, working our way up to the syllable level, um, drilling words. Hey, say the word cat 10 times. Okay, great. Now say the word kite 10 times um, up to sentences and phrases. And so not the most exciting therapy. We try to make it engaging for kids because we'll play games and stuff like that. But um, for articulation, it's a lot of drill and kill. Um, for language development, we do a lot of modeling and expanding. And so we will model kind of what we want a child to say in a specific situ situation, give them some communication temptations, put something super interesting in front of them, but not, you know, make it accessible to them. Um, one thing that's always like a go-to trick the SLPs piece is that you put something really interesting in a box and you make it so that they can't open it. And then you try to facilitate having the child request open. Um, that's always something that's kind of fun. Um, I mean, there's just so many different things we do. It just really depends on what you're working on. So um, really, we're just trying to make those communication temptations and try to make you know, the child feel empowered to use their communication to spontaneously interact with the environment around them. And then, of course, as soon as that, you know, they do something that we kind of want to see, then we, you know, reinforce with lots of praise and positive reinforcement um, and really try to then coach parents on how to continue those kind of activities and those sort of temptations at home as well. I like that. That's something that seems super accessible to you know parents even if even if you're not super concerned about your kids you know language acquisition rate or or how they're talking getting them to actually communicate with you I know you know my kids sometimes don't want to use their words and I will straight up tell them like I need you to use your big kid words you can use your voice you can use your words to tell me what you want or to ask for something rather than just you know sulking or hoping that I guess <laughs> what you want or you know 
if you want somebody to move out of your way, don't just shove past them. Say, excuse me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you, I mean, we do want to teach our kids to use, you know, effective communication. It's so much easier to get your way when you're using your words and you're a little bit polite about it. But I do want to make sure, you know, you emphasize with kids that you honor their communication attempts um, because not every kid's going to be able to use their words especially if they're just having a really hard time or something like that. And I think it's really important to um, empower kids so that they know that like, okay, maybe we can't read their minds and always understand what they want, but, you know, teaching them ways that they can really express themselves and advocate for themselves too. Yeah. I will say my, you know, I don't have any concerns about language with my my particular children in my particular (laughs) case. So in my case, it's, you know, my kids don't always want to use their words because they're being yeah. sulky, not because they can't. It's for them, it's an emotional thing. <laughs> well, I, you know, when I'm the same way when I'm hangry, so I totally understand <laughs> that. <laughs> what do you want to eat? Nothing. I'm like, no, I'm thinking about French fries, but for whatever reason, I'm throwing a hissy fit. I don't know. <laughs> so, Caitlin. Before we get wrapped up, this is something we like to ask all of our specialists. What is your dream for the parenting community? Um, I want parents to feel empowered about their decisions, um, but I also want them to, you know, forgive themselves. I think there's so much great information out there on like best practices and what to do and, you know, how do you best support your child? But let's be real. It's exhausting to try and be at 100%, 100% of the time, especially when you're juggling so many different things. And so I really want parents to, you know, have the resources that they need to make informed decisions, but just know that whatever you guys decide to do, your choices are what's best for you and what's best for your family. And what I'm going to be choosing to do with my child might not necessarily be what's best for your child. And so have some grace, forgive yourself, you know, it's a journey, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, there's all those different great metaphors about that. But I really, you know, want to emphasize that. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's something we really try and focus on here. We talk about that all the time on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So speaking of kind of forgiving yourself um, and taking care of yourself, what is one thing you will do for yourself this coming week? Ooh, does eating a whole box of cookies by myself count? Uh, are they Girl Scout cookies? Cause... No. Well, I have those. I um, I still have some Thin Mints stashed in my freezer that I just came across the other day. And so I've been going to town on those. But I am like obsessed right now with the Trader Joe's molasses cookies. Um, nice. I can't get enough of them. I have one for breakfast every day. And then I have to have like one when I get home from work and then one before bed. So I gotta <laughs> that's ask. been my craving. Yes, is it a craving? I was going to say, are you having any food cravings? Oh, molasses. I mean, it's weird. I've been eating so many sweets, and I'm usually not a, like a pastries or a sweets person, so it's definitely been pretty different for me, but I, you know, I'm embracing it. It's fine. We're, we're good. We're having a good time. <laughs> yeah. When I was pregnant with Charlotte, um, there's this restaurant that isn't around here anymore called Freebirds. And it was- oh, I loved Freebirds. Yes. It was, uh, for those of you who don't know what Freebirds is, it's like Chipotle on steroids. Like, they had so <laughs> many more options. Oh, and so much better. It was and so it much was, better. Oh, my God. It was so good. And at least once a week, 
pretty much the entire pregnancy with Charlotte, I wanted their carnitas burrito. Like, it was just a little bit spicy, but, like, not too much. And, oh, my God, it was so good. And then with Teddy, all I wanted was shaved ice and oatmeal. Like, (laughs) totally random things. Like, I wanted oatmeal all the time. And then I wanted shaved ice, like, every single night for dessert. (laughs) Oh, that sounds good, too. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just all about, like, the cookies and the brownies right now, which is not me usually. But I'm enjoying it. It's fine. My husband is, too. (laughs) That's that's baby telling you what they're going to (laughs) want. Yeah, great. I'm like, I need this kid to eat vegetables. But uh, I guess not. (laughs) See, forgive myself. You know, have some grace with parenting. Yeah, for sure. And and when you're having a hard day, reach out to other parents. We've all been there. We've all had those days. Like, we will be right there to cheer you on and tell you, like, it's okay. It's okay. Um, so before we go, where can our listeners find you at? Um, well, I'm part of the Birth Reimagined Facebook group, so... If you guys have any questions you can always like tag me in a post there um i'll come around and check um but in general you know i am an slp but i'm not your child's slp and so if you have any specific questions regarding your kids um definitely reach out to your local resources but i'm always happy to answer just questions in general about the process or um give ideas for like where to start perfect thank you so much no oh, thank you guys for having me it was so great to talk to you. I I love nerding out on like all of the parenting and birth stuff, like for real. I love it so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys. This has been really, really fun. Um, so for all of our listeners, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us here on Birth Reimagined. If you'd like to join our Facebook community, you can find us there at Birth Reimagined Family. And if you'd like to join our email list, you can get the link to that on the show notes for this episode. Being a member of our email list gets you access to all our freebies and makes sure you're kept in the loop whenever a new episode drops or we have anything exciting to share. Thanks again and see you next time.